Good morning. My name's Tabitha Patella, and I'm going to read today's scripture. I'm so excited to read this passage. Will you stand with me as we read Galatians chapter 3, verses 23 through chapter 4, verse 7? And if you have one of the Bibles from the back, that can be found on page 974. Again, we're reading from Galatians chapter 3, verse 23 through chapter 4, verse 7. And please remember, this is God's word. Now, before faith came, we were held captive under the law, imprisoned until the coming faith would be revealed. So then, the law was our guardian until Christ came, in order that we might be justified by faith. But now that faith has come, we are no longer under a guardian. For in Christ Jesus, you are all sons of God through faith. For as many of you, for as, many of you as were baptized into Christ have put on Christ, there is neither Jew nor Greek, there is neither slave nor free, there is no male and female, for you are all one in Christ Jesus. And if you are Christ's, then you are Abraham's offspring, heirs according to the promise. I mean that the heir, as long as he is a child, is no different from a slave, though he is the owner of everything, but he is under guardians and managers until the date set by his father. In the same way, we also, when we were children, were enslaved to the elementary principles of the world. But when the fullness of time had come, God sent forth his son, born of a woman, born under the law, to redeem those who were under the law, so that we might receive adoption as sons. And because you are sons, God has sent the spirit of his son into our hearts, crying, Abba, Father, so you are no longer a slave but a son, and if a son, then an heir through God. Thank you. You can have a seat. Gosh, those students don't, that doesn't light your fire, your wood's all wet, right? <laughs> I mean, how cool is that? Praise the Lord for that, that, those stories and those young men and for all the investment that's gone into that. that that's very cool. Uh, one other thing, uh, just before we get into the scripture that maybe wasn't clear uh, when I had said uh, groups and, and students are, are canceled this week, classes are not, okay? So classes will continue. Those will be tomorrow night, so if you're in a class, uh, we'll be here, show up for that. Um, C.S. Lewis was a philosopher, a theologian uh, in the 1950s kind of uh, time frame in particular. And uh, he was friends with a group of philosophers in Great Britain, and they would talk about the big issues of life and different things like that. And at one point, a, a discussion happened, and the question that everyone was discussing was this. What makes Christianity absolutely unique from every other system of belief in the world? That was, that was the question. And people uh, gave a number of ideas. One person said the incarnation. Uh, that's the idea that we celebrate at Christmas, that God became man, uh, God with meat, incarnation. And, uh, and, and they said that, that, that's what makes Christianity unique. And some other people said, well, not exactly, because there are other, uh, there are other um, world religions and villages and tribes and things that tell stories about God becoming a person. And so that's not totally unique from everything else. Someone else said, oh, well, it's, it's the resurrection. It's the fact that, that God came as a person and then lived and died and, and rose again. And that's what makes Christianity unique. Well, there's other stories. There's other uh, people that give accounts of people rising from the dead. I don't think any of them are as compelling as the, the Christian ones. So C.S. Lewis said, no, I, I don't think it's the incarnation. I don't think it's even the resurrection, as important as those things are. And can we agree those are important? He said, Here's what makes Christianity different. Grace. 
every other religion, every other way of thinking is man clawing, man attempting, man trying to get to God. In the Christian gospel, we have God coming to man. We have grace. That's what makes Christianity unique. And that's what we've been celebrating in this book of Galatians. I've enjoyed this study so far. I hope you're, I hope you're still tracking with this. I, hope, I told you at the beginning I, that we thought every week would start to kind of sound very similar. Um, hopefully that's not boring, uh, but exciting to you. I know it is to me. God is working in me as we study this book. And so um, we're getting uh, really towards the, the end over these next couple weeks of the, the deeply theological section. We'll begin to move into more of the practical sections uh, in the weeks to come. But what we're going to talk about today um, is absolutely wonderful. So let, let me just bring you up to speed in terms of where we've been in this book. And I actually am just going to go back to chapter 1. If you've got your Bible, uh, you can go, I'll just kind of go chunk by chunk what we've looked at. Uh, we looked at uh, Paul beginning this letter, not with a warm greeting, not with a, oh, I always pray for you, uh, but with verse, uh, chapter 1, verse 6. I'm astonished that you're so quickly deserting him who called you in the grace of Christ and are turning to a different gospel. Uh, he's saying there isn't another gospel, but you're starting to turn to it. And, and if you've been here through this series, you, you know the story by now, uh, that the, there were these men called the Judaizers. Uh, they had come from Jerusalem to this, these churches in Galatia, and their message was simply Jesus plus. Yes, Jesus is the Messiah. Yes, he died on the cross. Yes, you should believe in him. But also, you should add to that the works of the law, uh, circumcision, kosher, other ceremonial laws. That was their deal. And Paul is writing this letter to say, anything that's Jesus plus is a different gospel. Because it's Jesus and Jesus alone. And so that's how he started. And then he begins to tell his story. He says, the, the gospel I received is not a man's gospel. Um, he talks about going to the apostles in chapter 2, verse, uh, uh, verse um, 6. He says, I went to the apostles. I told them my message. The, the other apostles, they, they didn't have anything to add to, to what I had done. And to see Paul's fearlessness and to see how important this issue is to him, we saw in chapter 2, uh, verses 11 through uh, 14, that, that Paul was willing to even confront Peter, the apostle Peter, the rock, the pillar of the church. Even he had begun to slowly slide into this hypocrisy, and Paul confronts him publicly with that. The end of chapter 2, we saw this amazing truth called justification by faith. That word justification simply means to be made right with God. To have all of Jesus' righteousness credited to you and all of your sin and the punishment you deserve for it placed, placed on him. The idea of justification is phenomenal. And that's really what Paul talks about at the end of chapter 2 and then going into chapter 3. Um, justification, and get this, it's more than just having your sins forgiven. But it's also getting the righteousness of Christ. So imagine that you're, imagine for a moment, you're on death row because you're guilty. You've committed a heinous crime. And, and the scripture says that before God, you are on death row. Because all have sinned, all have fallen short of the glory of God. The wages of sin, the Bible says, is death. So you're on death row. And, and, and most people think of, of getting saved as simply being released from prison. And it is that, for sure, but it's something more. The idea of the gospel, the idea of justification by faith that Paul is talking about here is that you're on death row, you get released from prison, and as you come out, they give you the Congressional Medal of Honor that Jesus earned. 
That's what he begins to celebrate. He says, the only way for you to have this kind of, uh, this kind of pardon from, from your sin and this kind of righteousness credited to you is by faith in Jesus, by trusting in Jesus. And so then in chapter 3, he begins to contrast that with, uh, with trusting in Jesus, trusting in the promise that God offers, and trying to obey the works of the law. For us, it would be trying to be a good person, trying to be disciplined, trying to, whatever it is that you would try to do to get to God, that's what the works of the law are about. And so uh, John Benzinger was up here last week, and he was talking about the law and how the, the, the purpose of the law was to drive you to Christ because you could never obey God enough, right? So look at chapter 3, um, verse, uh, verse 10. Paul says, for all who rely on works of the law are under a curse, for it's written, cursed be everyone who does not abide by all things written in the book of the law and do them. In other words, you're guilty at one point, you've broken the whole thing. You can't rely on law. What you need is grace. What you need is God's forgiveness, God's pardon. What we're going to look at today, though, so, so in, in chapter, end of chapter 2, chapter 3, Paul has really been digging into this idea of justification, being made right with God. Here's what we're going to look at today. There's something even better than being made right with God. Let me say that again. Some of you, if you know the Christian gospel, you go, wait, 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 wait. There's something even better than being made right with God. Being a child of God. Being adopted into God's family. Having God not just as the judge who forgives you, but the father who embraces you. That's what we're looking at today. There's a whole new kind of dynamic that Paul is talking about here to elevate the gospel of grace. Remember, we've said that the gospel, this good news, is like a, it's like a jewel. And what Paul is doing in this letter is he's holding it up into the light and he's twisting it and he's looking at it and he's examining it. That's why I hope you're not getting bored with the, the theology of chapters three and four because that's him just twisting this jewel in the light. And today we see a fresh look at all that, that we receive by being sons of God. What I want to do today is look at four uh, new things that we get because of this relationship that we have with God. Here's the first thing, is we get a new status. A new status. We become sons of God. Look at 3, verse 23. Uh, Paul says, Now before faith came, we were held captive under the law, imprisoned until the coming faith would be revealed. And, and throughout this chapter, he's been making this point that living under the law without faith, before faith comes into your life, is like being a slave. He's going to actually continue that theme through chapter 4. But if you look at 23, he says, we were held captive. We were imprisoned. Uh, look at verse 25. We were no longer under a guardian. That's language of slavery. Uh, verse, chapter 4, verse 3. We were enslaved to the elementary principles of the world. And he concludes in verse 7, so you are no longer a slave, but a son. Before faith, we're held captive, we're imprisoned. But, but through faith, we become sons of God. 
Uh, John had talked about last week in verse 24 how it says the law was our guardian until Christ came. The idea of a guardian was a a tutor, someone that was uh, specifically designed to to lead the children. He says the, the purpose of the law is to lead us to Christ. Look at verse uh, 25. But now that faith has come, we're no longer under a guardian. For in Christ Jesus, you are all sons of God through faith. Sons of God through faith. There's a new status. You're no longer a slave. You're a son. You're no longer an orphan. You're a son. Sons of God through faith faith. Now there's two important things to see about this particular verse. In verse 26, in Christ Jesus you are all sons of God through faith. Here's the first thing to see. For those who, are, who have faith, they already are sons of God. This is not a goal to attain. This is not uh, God saying, if you do this, you'll be a son of God. It's saying, you have faith, you are a son of God. That's the first thing to see. The second thing to see, and this is also important, is that sonship, and I'll maybe use that word a few times today, sonship, the, the, the relationship of being a son of God, it comes through faith, and only by faith. It's not a universal given. Uh, this reminds us of John 1, which says that to all who received him, to them he gave the right to become children of God. It's, a, it's not uncommon in our world for people to say, well, we're all, we're, all, we're all children of God. We're all sons of God. And I know what people are saying. What people are saying is we're all created by God. What the scripture says is that, that sonship, that, that particular ability to have a, a, a child-parent relationship with God, that's available through faith. For in Christ Jesus, you are all sons of God through faith. Now there's something else important about this idea of status, and it's important that Paul uses the word here, sons. Sons. Do you notice it doesn't say in verse 26, for in Christ Jesus you are all children of God through faith. Though that is true, you are children of God, but in this particular passage it's important that he uses the word sons. When he says sons, he's he's communicating specifically about a new status. Uh, Tim, Tim Keller has this quote uh, that I think is particularly helpful. He says, why call, uh, why, why call women sons? Right? Because in this, in this idea, you're all sons of God. Why, why call women sons? Many take offense at using the masculine word sons to refer to all Christians, male and female. Some would prefer to translate verse 26, you are all children of God. But if we are too quick to correct the biblical language, we might miss the revolutionary nature of what Paul is saying. In most ancient cultures, daughters could not inherit property. Therefore, son meant legal heir and was a status forbidden to women. But the gospel tells us that we are all sons of God in Christ. If we don't let Paul say to women, in Christ, you too are sons, you too are heirs, then we miss how radical of a claim this is. 
Do you know what he's saying? And this is a huge point. The whole point is, is he's been looking at Abraham, the idea that Abraham believed God. It was counted to him by righteousness, uh, as righteousness. Uh, verse, verse 9, look at chapter 3, verse 9. Those who are of faith are blessed along with Abraham, the man of faith. Uh, what, what, what Paul's doing here is he's trying to connect those who have faith in Christ, saying they're the true offspring of Abraham. And if, and if that's true, then they are heirs. There's an inheritance, right? This is uh, verse 29. And if you are Christ's, then you are Abraham's offspring, heirs, according to the promise. Chapter 4, verse 7. You're no longer a slave, but a son. And if a son, then an heir through God. Ladies, you have an inheritance in the kingdom of God. You're not second class. You're an heir. There's an inheritance there. There's a new status, sons of God. Not only do you get new status, you get new clothes. Who likes new clothes? I like new clothes. Some of back, back to school time was always fun, you know. You'd get to have your, have your new clothes, baby. And, and Christmas, right, you, get to, you see someone after Christmas, you go, that's, a new, that's new clothes. You know in the gospel you get new clothes? Do you know that? And it's not witness wear. You know, like, Jesus Christ is life, the rest is just baseball, right? You don't, that's not what we're talking about. You get new clothes, you, you put on Christ. Uh, look at verse 27. He says, for as many of you as were baptized into Christ, and being baptized into Christ is, is just another way that the scripture and that Paul talks about being united to Christ by faith. There, there's not really much record other than the thief on the cross of an unbaptized Christian. If you're a follower of Christ, you're baptized into him, you go public with that, you identify with him. He's saying as many of you as were baptized into Christ have put on Christ. That word put on is a word that specifically refers to the idea of clothing. Uh, And so a couple of the other translations actually use this. The NIV translates it, for all of you who are baptized into Christ have clothed yourselves with Christ. The New Living Translation, all who have been united with Christ in baptism have put on Christ like putting on new clothes. So there's a new status, you're a son, but there's new clothes. You put on Jesus like you would put on your clothes in the morning. There's some significance, there's some implications of this that I think are really profound. The first one is this, is that our primary identity is in Christ. Our primary identity, if we're clothed in Christ, our primary identity is in him. See, our clothing is often used to tell people something about who we are, right? You look at how a person dresses and you go, oh, they're preppy, they're a business person, they're grunge, they're, what I don't even know what it is now skater they look like they want to live in california i mean just whatever it is right like like most a lot of times your clothing tells the world something about at least how you'd like to identify yourself so our clothes being clothed in christ means that jesus becomes our primary identity he becomes the one that we want to broadcast we're not as concerned about the outward appearance we're concerned about demonstrating Christ. He becomes our our new identity. Here's the second uh, implication of this clothing, these new clothes, is the closeness of our relationship to Christ. This may seem obvious, but think about this. Your clothes are closer to you than any other possession, right? Grab your shirt. It's close, right? It's, It's 
You, you feel it. It's, it's on you. And so what Paul's saying here is, listen, if you are in Christ, Christ is close. He's on you. And that's why all of life becomes all about Jesus. That's what it is to be his disciple. You're wearing the clothes of Christ. He's your primary relationship. He's the one that's close. And then here's the third thing is clothes demonstrate our acceptability to God. See, clothes are, are, are worn to cover our nakedness. We know that from Genesis 3, that when, when Adam and Eve sinned, before that they were naked and they felt no shame. And, and one of the first things they did after they fell into sin was they were exposed and they tried to clothe themselves. They grabbed fig leaves big fig leaves would make a pretty good little underwear kind of piece and cover you up a little bit. God says that's not enough. And so in Genesis 3, actually, one of the first pictures of the gospel is God sacrifices an innocent animal so that he can clothe Adam and Eve with the skins so that they can be acceptable to him. Well, Jesus was the truly innocent one who was sacrificed so that we could be covered. So clothing is significant. It becomes your identity. You realize Christ is close to me. I've put him on. I'm acceptable to him. I I can stand before God clothed in Christ. There's a new status. There's new clothes. Here's a third thing. There's a new future. There's a new future. Now this relates to the status, but it's significant to, to pull out. And so let's look at, uh, at chapter 3, verse 29, and, and we'll go here through, through the end of the, uh, the section. Uh, Paul says in 329, if you are Christ's, then you're Abraham's offspring, heirs according to promise. Uh, John had taken us last week back to Genesis chapter 12, said that that was one of the most important passages of the Bible where God makes a promise to Abraham. That he will bless those who bless him and that all the nations will be blessed through him. There's this great promise of an inheritance that, that there will be, he will have as many sons as there are stars in the sky. What Paul here is saying is if you're Christ, by faith, not by works of the law, but, but by trusting in Christ and what he has done, then you're Abraham's offspring. You're the fulfillment of that promise. You are sons of God. You are an heir, therefore, according to to promise. And then he goes into a little bit of an illustration. He says, verse, uh, verse 1, I mean that the heir, as long as he's a child, is no different from a slave, though he's the owner of everything. So Paul kind of takes us into the, this picture of a, of a wealthy household. He says, now imagine there's a, a little uh, young toddler. He's, he's the heir, but really, right, he really he's no different from a slave. He does what he's told to do, right? I mean, like, technically he's the heir, but but he's just a little kid, right? And, and woe to the person who treats their little kid like a king. Amen? Amen. <laughs> and you go, oh, that's what I've been doing wrong. Yeah, she ain't a princess. She's a little sinner. Now, you love her, and you should, but, but she's a little kid, right? And Paul's saying, yeah, they're an heir, but, but you don't have everything yet. Verse 2 He's under guardians and managers until the date set by his father. 
It says, in the same way, we also, when we were children, were enslaved to the elementary principles of the world. Now, he's going to use that phrase, elementary principles of the world, again in verse 9. We'll look at that probably more next week. But he's saying that, that that's the idea of the law, the idea that, that, that just natural thinking, that I can, I can earn my way to God. That's the elementary principles of the world. He said, when, before faith comes, that's how you think. You're like a little child. You don't understand how things actually are. And you're enslaved. You're stuck into that, that religious moralistic way of thinking. That's how everyone is. He says, verse 4, but when the fullness of time had come, God sent forth his son, born of woman, born under the law, to redeem those who were under the law so that we might receive adoption as sons. God, Paul is saying, God waited till the exact perfect time. The exact moment in history that it was right to send his son, Jesus. And he sent him, born of a woman. The significance there is he was a human being. Only a human being can live in our place. Only a human being can die in our place. He's born of a woman, fully God, but fully man, and born under the law. Jesus, too, had to obey the law. Jesus, too, had to do what God commanded, and he did. I want to pause for just a moment. This isn't the, the main point, but it is an interesting thing, especially for those of you that are, are, are in your life right now thinking, where is God? Is God going to show up? I, things are difficult right now. Things are painful right now. I don't, God, where are you? And I just, want to, I just want to show you a little thing in this passage that demonstrates God's perfect wisdom and timing. Do you see verse 4? When the fullness of time had come, at exactly the right moment, God sent his son. And, and, and you got to think about this culturally. Uh, God sent Jesus at the right time to do something new. It was the right time religiously. For the first time in the whole history of Israel, they had more or less been freed from outward idolatry. You ever wonder when you, when you read the Old Testament and, and the people of Israel, they're constantly worshiping Baal and worshiping Moloch and worshiping all these idols. And then when you read the Gospels, that doesn't seem to be an issue. Well, God had sent them off into exile. He cleansed them of that idolatry, and they come back into the land. It's, it was exactly the right time religiously. It was exactly the right time culturally. For the first time in the history of the world, there had been a common language, Koine Greek, where you could go to Jerusalem, and you could go to Athens, and you could go to Galatia, and you could go to Rome and speak the same language. That's why Paul can write this letter and these letters across the world, worldwide platform to expand the news about Jesus. It was the right time politically. This was the time of what was known as the Pax Romana, the Roman peace. It allowed the quick spread of the news about Jesus. It allowed roads to be built so that Paul could travel and these other apostles could tell people about Jesus. Listen, when the fullness of time had come, at the exact moment that God had organized things in the world by his sovereign grace, he sent his son. Some of you, you're, you're waiting, wondering, is God going to send his son? into this situation? Is God, is God going to send his son into my family? Is God going to send his son into this pain? God is faithful. God is good. 
And when the fullness of time had came, at right the exact moment, God sent his son. There's a new future that's guaranteed by that. There's a, a future that God is at work. He, he says that God did this, verse 5, to redeem those who were under the law. Again, redeem is the idea of pull someone out of slavery, more slavery language. You're, you're free from that. You're redeemed from being under the law so that you might receive adoption as sons. And because you are sons, God has sent his spirit, the spirit of his son, into our hearts crying, Abba, Father, so you are no longer a slave, but a son. And if a son, then an heir through God. I told you at the beginning, there's something even better than being made right with God. And it's being adopted by God, being a child of God, having the inheritance then that comes with that. I love how Wayne Grudem compares this in his systematic theology on on adoption. Here is an extended quote. Here's what he says. He says, Although adoption is a privilege that comes to us at the time we become Christians, nevertheless, it is a privilege that is distinct from justification and distinct from regeneration. Now, let me just define those words, make sure we're clear. Justification is that idea of being declared righteous before God, being counted righteous. And and the idea of regeneration is the idea of being made spiritually alive or to be born again. Paul's saying, or or Paul, (laughs) Feels like it sometimes. Uh, Wayne Grudem is saying adoption is, is even higher than, than justification and regeneration. He says in regeneration we are made spiritually alive, able to relate to God in prayer and worship and able to hear his word with receptive hearts. But it is possible that God could have creatures who are spiritually alive and yet do not share the special privileges of family members. Angels, for example, apparently fall into that category. Therefore, it would have been possible for God to decide to give us regeneration without the great privileges of adoption into his family. You ever think about that? Listen, we all think that angels, you know, because they're sinless, have this special access to God. Boy, if I could be like an angel, then I'd really have the ear of God. Angels aren't sons of God. That's why the scripture in Peter says that that angels long to look into the mysteries of the gospel. They they don't have the capacity to understand it. Is that amazing? Moreover, God could have given us justification without the privileges of adoption into his family, for he could have forgiven our sins and given us right legal standing before him without making us his children. It's important to realize this because it helps us recognize how great are our privileges in adoption. Regeneration has to do with our spiritual life within. Justification has to do with our standing before God's law. But adoption has to do with our relationship with God as our Father. And in adoption, we are given many of the greatest blessings that we will know for all eternity. When we begin to realize the excellence of these blessings and when we appreciate that God has no obligation to give us any of them, you realize that? God doesn't owe us. The only thing God owes us is wrath. And he poured it out on his son so we could become sons. When we realize that, then we will be able to exclaim with the Apostle John, see what love the Father has given us that we should be called children of God and so we are. There's a new future. You're a child of God. This is not just ruler and subject. This is father and son. And I know that is a difficult picture for some of you. For some of you, it is just so 
hard to imagine a father that's not like yours. Whatever it is, not distant, not selfish, not absent, not unable to please. God's none of those things. Those of you that are parents, at your very best moment, God is infinitely better than you as a parent. That's who he is. There's this new future. You're not just a slave, you're a son. Uh, Chapter 5 says, or chapter 5, verse 5 says, to redeem those who are under the law so that we might receive adoption as sons. The NIV there translates it full rights as sons, that we might receive full rights. This whole idea comes from this practice that it was common enough that Paul likely is referring to something related to this in the Greco-Roman world where a wealthy man who was childless could take one of his servants, one of his slaves, and adopt him. Usually an adult son. And he would take, because listen, there's this wealthy man, he's got this huge inheritance, no one to give it to. So he could take a slave, adopt him, and that slave would become an heir. That slave would be on the will, get everything. That's what Paul's talking about. He's saying, if, if you're, a, you're no longer, verse 7, you're no longer a slave, but a son. And if a son, then an heir through God. J.I. Packer says this, the doctrine of our adoption tells us that the sum and substance of our promised inheritance is a share in the glory of Christ. We shall be made like our elder brother at every point, and sin and mortality, the double corruption of God's good work in the moral and spiritual spheres respectively, will be things of the past. What kind of an inheritance does Jesus deserve? Right, he deserves to get to heaven and to be celebrated for Jesus, you're the only one who perfectly obeyed the Father. You're the only one who always did what the Father wanted. Jesus, you're the Son of God. What this is saying is that our inheritance is a share in that glory. Now, now to be clear, let's be very clear here. When the Bible describes Jesus as the Son of God, that is a title of deity that we will never share in, okay? This is not saying you've become partly divine. You're taking on this, this new divine nature that becomes a new, right? This is saying you get, you get a share of the inheritance. You get a share of what's coming to Christ. It's an amazing thing. You have a new status. You have new clothes. You have a new future. And you have a new assurance, You have a new assurance. God gives you this spirit of sonship. And the language here is so personal and so sweet and so rich. When Paul says in verse 6, And because you are sons, God has sent the spirit of his son into our hearts, crying, Abba, Father. Now now look, go back to verse 4. Verse 4 said, when the fullness of time had come, God sent his son. Then verse 6, God has sent the spirit of his son. 
See, listen, the son that God sends secures our legal status of sonship. Legally, we become the inheritance. The Spirit secures our actual experience of it, our relational enjoyment of it. And and to communicate this, he uses this very personal way of speaking. Verse 6, because you are sons, God has sent the Spirit of his Son into our hearts, crying, Abba, Father. Abba is is an Aramaic word. Uh, meaning that that was one of the, the, the major languages in Jerusalem at the time of, of Jesus. Uh, not a language probably that the Galatians would be very familiar with. Paul spoke both. And so in this moment, rather than using a Greek word that they would know, he uses an Aramaic word. It says, Abba, Father, God has sent the spirit of his son into your heart so that you could cry out, Abba, it's a word that means daddy, but he uses this this other word. Why? Why would Paul use this word that they would not be as familiar with? Well, he uses it another place. If you look at Romans chapter 8, we'll put this on the screen, kind of a parallel passage to what he's saying here. He says a very same kind of thing. He says, for all who are led by the Spirit of God are sons of God. For you did not receive the spirit of slavery to fall back into fear, but you have received the spirit of adoption as sons, by whom we cry, Abba, Father. The Spirit himself bears witness with our spirit that we are children of God. So Paul uses this in Galatians, he uses it in Romans, both to people that wouldn't have known really what the word meant without some explanation why. Well, it's because Paul very clearly wants us to see the connection between how Jesus used that word, and so can we. We have the same kind of access that, that Jesus had. Mark 14, 36, Jesus is praying in the garden, and he says, Abba, Father, all things are possible for you. Remove this cup from me, yet not what I will, but what you will. Jesus, in his darkest, most difficult, most intense moment, calls out to God, Abba, Daddy. It's a a word from from some of the study I've done that that it's almost like, um, it really would be even more than Daddy, it would be more like Dada. Right, you know how, how kids kind of, like, they... That's probably how the word dad, right? dad, dad, like they don't really know, it's just like a, it's like a, a, a cry out, they're just say, Abba, Father. Tim Keller says this, it was a daringly familiar term that Jesus used to draw near to the living God. When Paul says that we should use it, he's vividly asserting that we have legally inherited the rights of Jesus himself. We can approach God as if we were as beautiful, heroic, and faithful as Jesus himself. Did you know you can approach God like that? Did you know that? See, all this time you've been sort of cowering around thinking, well, I haven't been good enough, and I haven't really been very faithful this week, and I, you know, man, I, got, I lost my temper again, and yeah, it was never on you anyway. 
It's through faith. You've been united to Christ. You've been justified. You've been adopted. Wow! Can you believe that? That is good news. This, this is why the gospel is not try harder. That isn't good news. That's just exhausting, isn't it? Right? It isn't so much of the, the exhaustion and the difficulty in our lives because we just are so tired of, of trying so hard to prove ourselves to ourselves and to our family and to our dad and to our God, right? That's exhausting. That isn't good news. The good news comes and says, because of what Jesus has done, you can approach God as if you were as beautiful, heroic, and faithful as Jesus. That's awesome. Now, I, I love uh, this term, Abba, Dada. And it's come to mean a lot to me, um, primarily because of a particular story I read by a guy named Russell Moore. He wrote a book on adoption. And in that book, he tells this story. Some of you may have heard this story before. He talks about um, his experience with adopting uh, two boys from Russia. And here, here's what he says. He says, the creepiest sound I've ever heard was nothing at all. My wife Maria and I stood in the hallway of an orphanage somewhere in the former Soviet Union on the first of two trips required for our petition to adopt. Orphanage staff led us down a hallway to greet the two one-year-olds we hoped would become our sons. The horror wasn't the squalor and the stench, although we at times stifled the urge to vomit and weep. The horror was the quiet of it all. The place was more silent than a funeral home by night. I stopped and pulled on my wife's elbow. Why is it so quiet? This place is filled with babies. Both of us compared the stillness of the orphanage with the buzz and punctuated squeals that came from our church nursery back home. Here, if we listened carefully enough, we could hear babies rocking themselves back and forth, the crib slats gently bumping against the walls. These children did not cry because eventually infants learn to stop crying if no one ever responds to their calls for food, for comfort, for love. No one ever responded to these children, so they stopped. Silence continued as we entered the boy's room. Little Sergei smiled at us, dancing up and down while holding the side of his crib. Little Maxim stood straight at attention, regal and czar-like, but neither boy made a sound. We read them books filled with words they couldn't understand about saying goodnight to the moon and cows jumping over the same. But there were no cries, no squeals, no groans. Every day we left at the appointed time in the same way we had entered in silence. On the last day of the trip, Maria and I arrived at the moment we had dreaded since the minute we received our adoption referral. We had to tell the boys goodbye. As by law, we had to return to the United States and wait for the legal paperwork to be completed before returning to pick them up for good. After hugging and kissing them, we walked out into the quiet hallway as Maria shook with tears. And that's when we heard the scream. Little Maxim fell back in his crib and let out a guttural yell. It seemed he knew maybe for the first time that he would be heard. On some primal level, he knew he had a father and a mother now. 
I'll never forget how the hairs on my arms stood up as I heard the yell. I was struck, maybe for the first time, by the force of the Abba passages in the New Testament, ones I had memorized in vacation Bible school, and I was surprised by how little I had gotten it until now. You have an Abba who hears you, who loves you. Let's pray. God, thank you for this good news. God, we want to rejoice in it. We want to revel in it. We want to draw near to you. God, I pray especially for those right now that are wondering where you are and if you will show up. And I pray that they would see from this text, from this word, that you are there, that you are listening, that you care, that you love us. God, for those still struggling with that they're not doing enough and they're not good enough and they're not performing well enough, God, would they rest in your good news. Lord, we pray that to you in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. We're going to celebrate a meal with Jesus. We're going to respond to that truth. And uh, we're going to do it by singing and by celebrating, reminding ourselves of all that God is for us and by taking the bread and the cup. Eating the bread and remembering Jesus' perfect life for us. The life that deserves the applause of heaven credited to us. We'll drink the cup. Today as you drink the cup, taste Taste the sweetness of the juice. Remember that it was a bitter death for Jesus that gives us the sweetness of knowing him. Taste that sweetness. Taste and see that the Lord is good. If you're here and you're a follower of Christ, we invite you 